Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. As always, please be sure to like, share, follow, subscribe to us wherever you are listening. You can leave us a review, a rating, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors to come on over and have a listen. That support is huge. Today, we're joined by James Barker of the James Barker Band. Now, the band burst onto the scene in 2016 with their major label debut single, Lawn Chair Lazy. In 2017, they hit number one on Canadian radio with Chills, and it's been a steady climb to success ever since then. We had a great conversation, not only about the success of the band, but also James's beginning in music, because it began long before the band formed in around 2013. It actually began when he was four years old on the violin. So please enjoy our conversation with James Barker. The first thing I want to talk about is band camp. Oh my goodness, band now, camp. When did that start for you? Um, I mean, well, band camp started really, I guess, grade, kind of the camp would have been like grade 10 was the first time I went. I mean, I when I was, I to go earlier than that, I played violin when I was like four. I don't oh, know okay. why, when I was a four-year-old, I was obsessed with violin um, and started playing like, like classical violin and then kind of the transferred into fiddle like a couple of years later um more like country style stuff but did like classical music for a couple of years and uh and so then did that but when I got into high school obviously I'd started playing playing guitar and writing when I was like 12 and uh they were like yeah there's like this arts camp uh, that you can go to and it's going to be all these like kids from all these other high schools and so uh I went and it was like eye-opening to be able to go and collaborate with people and I, I mean you do collaborate with people at your own school and stuff but it's generally people who are on the scale of invested a little bit to not invested at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so going to arts camp for the first time, um, which is actually where I met Connor. Yeah. Um, you run into a whole bunch of people who are obsessed as obsessed with music and a bunch of old bands that none of your other like peers have heard of. Um, so that, that's like, that was like one of the best things. I mean, those programs, just to give a little shout out, they give kids that opportunity to go and do that are literally the reason I feel like 95% of people who are in music are in music because of like those, those adults and teachers who like push, push that stuff. Right. And so at the age of 12, you started writing. And so what was it that sort of made you catch that musical bug? Were your parents musical? Was it around the house or was it something just within you that caught fire? Um, my mom is a musician. My mom went, she actually went to, she's a singer and then plays uh, some classical guitar. Um, okay. She actually went to, uh, to like college university for music, um, for singing, for vocals, like uh, jazz stuff, like jo Joni Mitchell kind of stuff. And, uh, and so when I was a kid, she would always be playing and singing and, and actually wrote a bit. And, uh, and so I remember I had like played, like I said, I played the violin and guitar when you're a kid is like a daunting thing. It's so big. You, like you can't get your hands around it. Right. And so when I was 12, I was like, I want to learn. I want to, I, she bought me cause I had started playing the drums when I was like 10. She had bought me Zeppelin four. Um, and I, prior to that, I was obsessed with the Beatles, like from grade six and younger, I was like, I knew every Beatles song off by heart. And so when I started playing the drums, she bought me Zeppelin four and was like, you have to listen to this drummer. Um, Cause John Bonham obviously is like, even if you haven't heard it, you've never heard anything like it. Yeah. And so she bought me that album 
and I listened obviously to freaking Black Dog and Rock and Roll and, and all of those songs. And I got to stare to heaven. And I was like, I want to learn that on guitar. <laughs> and so she she taught me the intro, the, the whole like acoustic section of that song on guitar. And I was like, this is the, this is it. Like, I want to do this because now I can write. Now I can play. And it was like I went and started getting lessons and like had the whole song. I was like obsessed with it, had the whole song down like a month solo and everything. Because you become upset when you're that age, you just dive into stuff. And uh, and that's when it started. And then instantly you all of a sudden you're like, I can write and do all of these things when I have guitar. So it 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 took off like really fast for me as soon as like as soon as the, the guitar got in my hands. It was like gotta write like every day, gotta play six hours every day. And that's not an exaggeration. That's all that you care about when you're that age. And so what did it make you feel like as a sort of teenager, you get obsessed with it and want to learn it. But on the inside, when you did learn that stuff, how did that make you feel? I mean, it's so it's so weird. I feel like this is maybe kind of the key to life. But whatever makes you forget that time exists is probably what you should do for a living. And that's what music was. It was never like it was never a conscious effort to sit down and practice. It was never a conscious effort to sit down and write a song. It was like, I need to go and do this thing. If I don't get to do this, I'll probably actually be angry. Do you know what I mean? It's like that. That's what it always was. And so I guess it's like technically you can say it kind of like fills you up um, emotionally or whatever. But you'd be feeling you just want to do it. And like you would get or like, you know, when you're in high school, you're like just a ball of like hormones and emotions. <laughs> and so you're trying to make sense of that. And as a dude, you don't want to be talking to other people about it. So what do you do? You go and and try and write it. And you kind of, you know, subconsciously are taking inspiration from all of the people who you've listened to in your life, whether that be anyone from the Beatles to George Strait. You're like, well, he was heartbroken in this song or he was excited or in love in this song or he was just like proud in this song. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like it's so intuitive when you're a kid because you don't overthink it. You know what I mean? Right. You don't have enough frame of reference to even be like, oh, I can't write this or write that. You just do it. You just sit down and you just do it, you know? And so because your mom did it when you were young, did the songwriting become pretty natural for you at that point through sort of middle and high school? Yeah, it really did. And my mom was really good at like being super supportive of that. My sister and I both wrote and my brother wrote a little bit too, more like just lyric stuff. Um, but she was so supportive and she was, but she was also really good at like creative or constructive criticism and oh, okay. being like, oh, this is a cool idea you wrote, but why did you say this here? And she could hear when you like, kind of like calmed out on something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, you should spend more time on that thing that you clearly like rushed through. She was really, she was really good at doing that, which is like one of those things that you really probably only get from someone who's written before, you know, yeah. that would listen to it and be like, I can tell that you slacked at this point and say that in also, but in the most motherly way that isn't offensive, you know? <laughs> and is there any ideas throughout high school that you wrote about or any songs that you took inspiration from for any music moving forward, like with your, your first solo stuff or with the James Barker band? I mean, definitely um, on the, like, what's the right word? Like conceptually or, or vibe wise. I mean, the, the, the thing that you don't have when you're in high school is necessarily the depth of understanding of like lyrics and the comp like how complicated nuanced melodies and lyrics can be right and so i feel like like when you write in high school it's just kind of stream of consciousness for me it was anyway i mean i'm bob dylan i'm sure it wasn't <laughs> um 
but it was more stream of consciousness. And then it get, didn't get into more of like a craft until I was at a high school and was really able to do it all the time. Um, but I look back at those songs cause I still have a bunch of my old like books that I wrote down ideas and, oh, nice. and somewhere there's a bunch of tapes like that I recorded, um, probably at my dad's place. And, uh, I'm like, those, those are real things. Because like I said, you weren't trying to emulate anything else. You were just trying to let it all, you're just trying to say what you wanted to say. Yeah. And so there's like an honesty to that, um, that I feel like is, is kind of what you can lose if you're not careful. You kind of need to be able to keep tapping back into that that kid who's not a songwriter when you write a song weirdly enough as, as counterintuitive as that sounds yeah definitely and you mentioned meeting connor in band camp now throughout high school there were some bands that you guys took part in right what did that all look like throughout high school and playing it's weird i mean when you're in high school and you you just are like i want to be in a band uh, okay i play guitar and I didn't even really sing. I wrote, but I didn't like to sing for people. And oh, okay. so I was like, I'll just go. And like in grade nine, I was in another, I was in a band called like Blue Flame or something where I didn't sing. I just played guitar. And then I actually played as like guitar for like this oldies band of like, from to me at the time seemed ancient, but they were actually only probably like 45 year old dudes. <laughs> and then when, when Connor and I started our band, it was for the first time, like I said earlier, where I was like, this person is as committed to music as I am. So we can like book rehearsals and and try and get gigs and like join battle of the bands and stuff and that's what happened with connor and i connor's like i got my buddy who played bass and i kind of started singing a little bit um and he's like let's try and do this stuff so i had like a handful of songs i'd written and we got together and connor came up with like drum parts and our good friend cody came up with bass parts and we ironed it out and like just started joining battle of the bands um which is kind of the thing you just like are like because <laughs> you you're like you don't even know how to go and you're too young to go play bars really Right. And so and so you're either doing that. And so we would play like at the occasional like party. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. high school party and stuff. Um, but we started joining Battle of the Bands and uh, we we won one. And like usually it's like you get like recording time or you get like a free pizza or whatever the heck. It is. <laughs> but we got one and we actually lost. And it was like the biggest one probably in the GTA for a rock Battle of the Bands. And we lost to these old dudes because there was like a boating aspect and they brought all of their like grandkids. And so there was like, we didn't have even our, like our parents didn't even come because we didn't tell them. We're like, they don't want to come to a rock show. Right. And, uh, and so we lost, but we, the, the dude who ran the recording studio was like, I'll still let you guys come and, and cut music a song for free. And it was, it was Taylor. Taylor was the guy who ran the recording studio. Right. Um, and so that's how we met him. And he like, we headed off and became buddies super fast. And so when we finally decided to like take a real, what I would call like professional, even though it wasn't super pro at the time, run it doing this full-time like doing the full-time country thing which i as i had been writing even though i was like into rock and like i was into like the arctic monkeys and and the killers and and freaking the strokes and that kind of thing but i had been raised on country music so all my songs i would write and try and sound like that ended up sounding like a country song and uh when we actually took a run at it taylor's like dude i would love like i'm a huge country music fan i would love to be be able to be come and write with you guys and play and sing and do all of that stuff and that's really how the band started that's awesome. And I saw the first sort of documented point of going to Nashville was in later 2013. I saw on your Instagram. Now, when was the first trip that you made down to Nashville and how did it all come about going down there? So my first trip was two years earlier than that. I graduated high school in 2010, like in whatever, like June of 2010 or whatever it is. And, uh, 
and I had been like playing obviously through high school with bands and playing with Connor and, and all of that stuff. And I was like, I really want to be a songwriter. I was like, I, I don't know if I even want to be like a singer, but I really want to be a songwriter. Okay. And so I, this is, this is the thing I guess that makes it for you when you're trying to be a musician. But I went and found out that there was this thing called the CCMAs. And I found out that like the Canadian country music association, and I found out that if you signed up and paid the membership fee, you got like a contact list of like, everyone who's a part of the ccma right so i had started posting all of these youtube videos up when youtube was super early of just like my original songs and i went on there and sent an email to every single person on the list like literally (laughs) i sent it like 500 emails to everybody and i got i got one email back from a dude (laughs) named denny carr and he was like who worked for open roads recording um and was the anr over there right and uh, and he's like Hey, uh, these videos are cool. When are you coming to Nashville? And I was not, I had never been, I had no plan on going to Nashville. And so I embezzled and I was like, actually, I'm going to be down, um, in March, in March of 2011. And so I freaking, he's like, okay, awesome. Let me know. And I'll set up some rights. And so I had, I then went to my parents and was like, Hey, this dude from this label wants to meet with me in Nashville. And I had to lie to them. And so my parents were like, well, we aren't going to let you go. Like I was 18 at the time. They're like, we're not going to let you go to America to go to Nashville, drive there on your own. We'll come with you. And so in that March, like I went and met with, with Denny Carr and ended up meeting Ron Kitchener, who was at that label too. And they like set me up with a bunch of rights. And just that little point of like, Ooh, this could be a real thing. was enough for me to be like full in. Like, this is like, I'm, <laughs> I'm all in. And so from that point on, I just like, I would work for two months, go to Nashville for two weeks, work for two months, go to Nashville for two weeks, like just to like pay for it. Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. Like, I just kept doing it and the network kind of grew and that's how it all happened. And then at the same time in tandem started playing with the band and things started kind of working in Canada. We started playing bigger and bigger shows. And so it was weird how like the two things kind of happened at the same time. Um, it was wild. Craziest thing. I actually worked this is kind of a weird side tangent, but that first time I went to Nashville, one of my first rights, Denny Carr had this intern working at their office who was like just a, a girl who was going to Belmont and her brother was a songwriter and kept coming to the office and pestering him to be like, I want co-writes, I want co-writes. <laughs> and so Denny Carr, now looking back, was like, I've got this annoying kid from Canada. I've got this annoying kid in Nashville. I'm going to just make them write together. They won't know. And that he's that's Hardy now. Like I was wondering, Hardy. I was going to ask if that was Hardy, because I saw you wrote a song in 2013 with him that you released um, last yeah. year in 2020. Yeah, 2020, I believe. So, yeah, it was so weird. Now we like every time we see each other, it's like it's like so crazy how random that was, but also how long this takes. It's like <laughs> you just keep doing the thing. You just keep writing, just keep writing and writing and writing. That is hilarious. And another funny moment that I wanted to talk to you about was. 2015, I saw on your social media, February 2015, you had a little video clip of yourself in the morning. And you're like, Oh, my mom just woke me up. And it was a late night. And it turns out I'm on the radio. So that's cool. And it was like the most deadpan thing of your song being on the radio, like no excitement at all. And so I found that funny that it wasn't like, Woo, my song's on the radio. And I was wondering, was that a solo song yeah at that that was uh that was off my first record which i did with that label that i had come down and met like that was whatever four years freaking later um (laughs) but i recorded a handful of songs and then the the station up in in barry um or i guess it's technically in aurelia um kicks 106 it was called and that's called pure country they uh we have a good friend who 
who was good buddies with Taylor and Taylor was already playing with me, but it wasn't called James Parker band. Right. It was just called James Parker. Um, and, uh, he like did us a solid and played it like uh, in the morning, like at drive time. And like, we had no idea he was going to do it. it was Neil Anthony is his name. He's like still a good friend of ours. And, uh, and he played the song and like my mom came, like woke me up. I had been like gigging somewhere the night before. And so I'd gotten home at like whatever, four o'clock. Right. And she came home, and I was so tired. It's so funny though. Cause like, you do, you always, and that was before like the day of TikTok where now like grown men are doing dances for followers and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was like that time where it was like, I still like didn't have, really have any following. And so there's this thing we always joke about with our group where it's like, you have to always like, rem- every time you go to post something in the back of your mind, it's like, oh, my buddies back home are going to see it. And if I do anything embarrassing, they're going to comment and they're going to call me out. And every time I see them, they're going to do it. So you're always working through that lens of being like, try to do something that's not going to get you turned like, oh, look at you being all excited, crying on Instagram. Or right. It was totally that thing of like, OK, still got to try and be cool. So. Oh, man, that's hilarious. And so in 2015 as well was Boots and Hearts. Now, was that the first time that you guys really played as the James Barker band? I mean, not the very first time we started playing. We were actually in a band with the four of us and, and another member um, called Highway 12 for about a year. Oh, okay. Um, and I was just a guitar player. I wasn't the singer. And it got to the point where I was like, I want to I want to try and be a singer. I was like, so and he was the other guy was still super tight. And he was like, you know, I want to do it, too. And so we're like, OK, let's go our separate ways. And so we ended up going. And like I said, it was just called James Barker. But we were such an obvious band thing that people right. started calling us that like we didn't ever at any point be like we're the james barker band it was just like people came and were like it's clearly not just the dude up there it's the whole interaction and people started like billing us as james barker band okay. um, and so we're like okay and i was like i'm, a, I'm not planning on like jumping ship i mean these are my my best friends and so it just happened and so we had played a bunch leading up to boots and hearts just as james barker band but that was like by far the biggest opportunity and biggest thing we had ever played at the time, like by thousands of people. <laughs> right. And so 2014, you go to Boots and Hearts as fans with general admission passes. 2015, you win the Emerging Artist Showcase. And now this year, you headline the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So does, does that just sort of bring into perspective what this journey has been when moments like that happen? Yeah, it's insane. Like thinking back to those moments, because it is, there's, if there's one thing COVID has been good for, it's like being able to reflect on that stuff. Because when you're in it, you're just like nose to the grind and you don't have a chance to look up and see how far things have changed, like how much, how much has changed and how far you've come. Right. Um, but this year coming back and being, being a headliner on a show is so different because when you're an opener, there's always something in the back of your mind. You're like, we can't be too, sh- we can't be too long. We've got to be fast. Sound check's going to be quick. We got to do it people are going to be anticipating the person after us. And when you're a headliner, it's like, it's the pinnacle of the whole event. You know what I mean? And so to go back and be like, this is a, tonight is all about us. And to come out, cause you kind of need to have that, like a bit of an ego when you're on stage, you got to take that, you got to take that guy off and you get off stage. Cause it'll make you crazy. Right. But like, it's like, it totally gives you like a confidence boost and like some extra like oomph going on and being able to go back and be like a couple years ago, we were like, playing side stage at like one in the afternoon and now we're headlining. It totally is like a, a game changer. That is awesome. And shortly after that, you signed your first record deal. Now I saw a quote from you. I don't know if it's on social media where it was, but you said before you signed that deal, 
you were told by a lot of other labels, a lot of other people that you were behind the curve of country music. Talk yeah. about that and just that experience leading up to signing with Universal and sort of what you were told as a band. Yeah, it was really weird. Like we had done like a bunch of like competitions and that kind of thing and been told a bunch of times. It's like you're you're either ahead or behind the curve. We don't know which one. And uh, which is like discouraging to hear. Like, obviously you get discouraged, but like at that point, you're too committed to give up. So you just kind right. of toughen it in. Um, but it uh, it's it's crazy because I look back and I'm like, we kind of like if if I had seen us now, I'd be like, these guys don't have their stuff together. I'd be like these this is not it, but it is crazy. I don't know. Like, thank goodness for people like, like the people at Universal who believed in us and on our management team to look at us and be like, we can see the potential here because I do feel like, like, we are like, just not like, I was like, I look at how I dressed and I was like, man, you look like an idiot. And like, even like we would like show up like unprepared and not have like extra guitar strings or like be out too late the night before. It's crazy how, and we've seen it now too with like other friends in the industry who are at the same stage as us, where it's like people like it takes a while to get that stuff together and you need people who believe in you to help you through that. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, thank, thank goodness people did. Well, that's interesting because you work so many years to get to this certain point. Right. But when it happens, you know, is it almost surreal that, you know, you've been chasing it, but maybe in the back of your mind, you thought you'd never get there. And then when you do, you're not, necessarily ready for it yeah i feel like there is a sense where if you've been doing this this long you probably are ready but it's really really easy to like lose the confidence and be like this is like because like it's that thing where all of a sudden your whole life you can be like okay i can do 99 percent of the i can do it a job 99 percent of the the you know to the to its potential right but and and you're like and it's good enough because i'm only at this level when you get to the highest level you are competing with people who are doing the job 100% to their like uh, to the maximum potential. And so you have to start doing that. You have to hold yourself so much more accountable and be so much more professional and like push so much harder. It's like the professional athletes where you hear about the dudes who like, when they get to the NHL or the NBA, they work 10 times harder than they did to get there because now you're against the best in the world. You like, you know what I mean? There's no, there's no backing out anymore. And I feel like that's kind of the way it was for us, but, there's also the gratification when things work at that level is way higher because you're like, we are performing against the best in the world and things are working. So clearly we know, we, you know, we've, we've come far enough and we know what we're doing. And so in 2017, when chills hit number one, what was that moment like? Cause that's the pinnacle, right? A number one on Canadian radio. That was, that was wild. We were out on tour opening up for Dean Brody on our first kind of full Canadian wide tour. And we were still that to me, that part of my life is like a blur because we were, I was still managing the band. Like we didn't have management. We had just gotten on with universal and like, we, we had like, we we're just like still like kind of scrambling to make it all work and convince everybody that was at the label and everything that we were legit. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And so like, I'm like trying to like, book shows and we like made our own like tour bus to go on the tour because we couldn't afford it but you don't want people to know that because you need the perception to be that you're like rock stars (laughs) and so I remember when it went number one it was like such a shock because like you you're not paying attention to that you're just every day you wake up and you're like putting up fires and trying to make keep the ball rolling and keep the momentum going and so when that happened it was just like a shocking thing I think we were playing maybe like Winnipeg or something that night 
And I just remember going up and like everyone knew the words to the song, like the whole, whatever it was, like five or 6,000 people in that place. And I was like, this is like crazy. Like, you're like, how can this happen? Like, we've got like a 25 minute set before Dean Brody. It's like, how can there be so much chaos? And then you go up and you're like, this makes it all better. Do you know what I mean? It all, yeah. it all is worth the, you know, the 24 hours of work you put in to get there the day before. And so when that hit number one, you had already signed, but like you say, you were still kind of grinding it out. When that hit number one, was that sort of a realization that this was going to work sort of that realization that this is going to be a career as long as we work hard at it. Yeah, I think so for sure. And like us for weirdly enough, we've got like this insane silly level of confidence and always have, we're like, if we just keep working hard, it must be like a, a farmer thing. Or it's like, <laughs> if you just keep working hard, you will be able to achieve your goal. You just have to keep working hard and work harder than you've ever worked. And then, work harder than that again and I feel like with chills it was like that thing but it was almost like a dangerous amount because then we're like what's the next you know we're like mm. America's next we're like right you know you're like you're like here's the next thing and so it was totally a, a confidence and those early stages when you're first starting out it feels like you do six months of grinding and then you'll get one little opportunity or one like little light and that was totally the thing we're like we were kind of run down we're on a tour you're like you're not eating properly. You're not working out. You're like up late. You're driving through the night. And so that was totally one of those things where it was like, this is it. And we're like, you do have that moment of like, people are resonating with this thing until now, until you get like that reassurance of a number one, you're like, is it working? Is it like, is it just like a flash in the pan? Is it just something? And then when you don't get those number ones, unless it's resonating, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it, the, the songs will fall off. And, uh, and that was like a clear moment, especially when the fans knew it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like some contrived thing that a label put together and forced up. It was like, people liked the song. And that was totally one of those things. It was like, okay, well, how do we do that again? <laughs> <laughs> and so from number ones to like billboards in Canada and the U S to playlist covers to all these things, do you have to make sure you stop along the way and enjoy them? So, so it, the, just doesn't become a blur and all of a sudden you look back and think oh I miss those things that's definitely something that like I feel like hopefully going out of COVID we do more because going into it especially like those first four or five songs in Canada it was totally and this is 100% something from like my dad and the farm thing it is like and it's also like a sports thing where you're just like you just keep going you just keep grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding and don't take a second to celebrate because if you do, that's one second that you're not working. Right. And I feel like I look back and I'm like, damn, I wish we had just taken a second. Like, I don't know what I did the night that chills went number one, but I'm almost certain that I got off stage. We loaded the bus and I went and started like doing emails or writing or something. I'm almost certain of it. And I'm like, we should have, we should have went out. We should, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you've got to do those things because those things only happen one time. So I feel like that's something that it does take a second to learn, but also, if you're the kind of person who's in this industry, you're likely a hustler and you're, it's, you're likely going to have to miss a few things in order to learn that. So, right. And when did you make the official move to Nashville? Um, officially full time in 2018. So, oh, okay. So a few years ago now, um, we like yeah. moved up and, and came down and it's, uh, I, 
I mean, it's, it's hard. Cause you're like, I wish I would have been down here sooner, but like, we were so busy. Things were going so crazy fast in Canada. Yeah. That, like, like you said, like you said, like that chills went number one in 2017. So I look back and I'm like, Oh, I wish I could have been sooner. I was like, that was only a year. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but you're just like, it's just like the competitive nature, I guess, to be like, Oh, I'm yeah, revisionist history. You just want to go back and be like, I wish I could have done this, you know? even faster, even better, even stronger. You know what I mean? Just right. And so this year you signed your record deal in the States. Now, what have those three years been like in Nashville? Has it been just sort of working your way up within Nashville, trying to sort of get to the point of getting your music out to all of America? Or what is that like for a Canadian going down to Nashville and trying to break into the American scene? It's crazy. I mean, the biggest thing I would say that that you notice when you move to Nashville is just how how intense the talent pool is of writers and musicians. I mean, that's the first thing anyone who comes to Nashville. That's the first thing you notice. You're like everyone is so everyone is better than everyone you've ever met. Is right. what the, it feels like when you first come to town. But being down here full time, because there's kind of a bit of a what I would call a myth with Canadian artists where they're like, Oh, Americans don't like Canadians. It's like, so that's why we can't break in America. And it's like, no, that's not why it's because you're, you're not doing it full time. When you live in Nashville, you are surrounded by people who are better than you. And that makes you want to be better so bad that you do it nonstop. You do it night and day, every single day, like ever since being down here, especially since like the last year when there hasn't been shows, I write every day. I write, every single day and I practice guitar every single day and I sing every day. It's just what you do. And being in town makes you so much better. It's like that 10,000 hours thing. Right. You need to be down here. And that's totally what it is. I mean, it's, it's the place to be. If you're in music, it's like, everyone is just so good. It, you're like inspired. It's not even like you're angry or driven by that. You're inspired constantly by people who are doing music at such a high level. Right. That's awesome. And so coming out of 2020, you come into 2021, you get a number one single in Canada, your third in Canada, you sign to a record label, and now you have the new single, New Old Trucks, featuring Dirks Bentley. And so what are those three things like to have coming out of this crappy year and moving forward, hitting the ground and just starting to run? It's so exciting. I mean, all of those things are freaking wild. I mean, if you told us we would be able to sign an American, the American record deal is kind of like, as soon as you get into music, even when you're a kid, you're like, we need, we want like the, we want the big U S record deal. That's what you need. That's when you know you've made it. <laughs> and so we're like to, to get that locked in, especially during like the pandemic was kind of mind boggling for maybe the only record deal ever signed over DocuSign because we couldn't like the Sony office was literally like closed. Um, but that was amazing. And then the Dirks thing is like still, I think the dust is still not settled for how crazy that is, that that has come together. I mean, New Old Trucks is not even, a, I think that song was written, it was written the day before my son was born, which is June 29th. Oh, okay. And so you, it was written on the 28th. And so that song is like really new. I mean, that song is like, usually you write a song and it's like around for a year before you cut it, release it and all of that stuff. And so we like had written that song our and our guys good friends with Dirks showed it to him when they were driving home from like a camping trip or a wedding or something and Dirks was like I love the song I want to record it and he was like can I come in next Wednesday and cut vocals it was like that and then it was out the radio within a month it was like it happened that fast and so like we're all still like our heads are spinning from that happening because we're all such huge Dirks fans 
That is amazing. Well, I think you do have another number one Canadian hit on your hands and hopefully this will be the one that'll get you into American radio as well and shoot you up the charts there as well. Really hoping. I mean, freaking, I mean, it, it feels, that song feels special. So we're, we expect big things. Awesome. Well, congratulations on all the success. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing your journey. It's great to learn sort of the journey behind what we see on the charts and within your music and learning what you've gone through to get to this point. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to listen to me blab loop music. Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to James for stopping by and sharing his story and the story of the band. Be sure to check out their new single, New Old Trucks, featuring Dirks Bentley, wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to like, share, follow, subscribe to us wherever you are listening. You can leave us a review, a rating, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors to come on over and have a listen. That support every week is huge. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Mm-hmm.